Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 27th, 2019. This is episode 2519 of the Survival Podcast, 2519, as we rock on through now 11 plus years of the Survival Podcast, given it is... Friday, 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 it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, Expert Counsel Q&A Show. I got a good lineup for you, but I'll tell you right now, I need Expert Counsel questions. I need them for next week. Um, some of the EC has a uh, backlog, but a lot of these folks, they, they, they get on the questions quick. So if you'd like to ask a question of a council member, any of the ones that you'll hear today or any of our uh, like 15 experts that we are blessed to have uh, on our, our list of expert council members, remember you can find them all by going to the survivalpodcast.com and in the About tab you'll see a link that is Meet the Expert Council. If you have a question, uh, I just about guarantee you we have somebody who's an expert in the world that you have the question of anything, preparedness, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, liberty, legal issues, You name it, we've got someone for you. So get us these questions. That was, that's what makes these Friday shows. Couldn't do it without the expert counsel, but I couldn't do it without y'all asking the questions and actually providing the content that you actually want to know about. Uh, so here's what we've got lined up for you today. Um, first, I've got a quote of the day for you from Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., Not Junior. Junior is the guy that was a Supreme Court justice. This is his daddy. And this is a hell of a quote. Uh, this quote has a lot to do with lifestyle design that we talk about all the time. At least you think it's something new. Then we have a question. We have a twofer. Making the switch to off-grid living while you're still on-grid. And then a question about Tesla solar tiles, roof tiles. Are they a real thing or is it just a gimmick? Sean Mills, of course, is who we turn to for that. If I send the Tesla roof tile one to Stephen Harris. He'll have a coronary and kill himself. So we'll send it to Sean. Uh, next up, considerations with livestock and grain bins with Darby Simpson, who knows just a little bit about feeding livestock, I'll tell you that. Uh, Patrick Rohrman talks about sharpening and maintaining the edge of a kookery-style knife. It's a really interesting style of knife, one I have a lot of affinity for. More on working the night shift with the old man himself, Doc Bones, if he can get himself out of bed and talk about the night shift. Uh, the AK-47 versus the M1A is the ultimate shit-hit-the-fan weapon, indulging a little bit of fantasy and bringing in some reality of real events with J.R. Haley. Uh, gearing modifications and CV boot maintenance of your vehicles, another twofer with Derek Aban Pietro. And then I have uh, one I'm taking, kind of expanding on last week's, uh, spurred on by a email uh, from a listener that I'll read as well, On, on arming yourself in any location, uh, regardless of whether or not you can technically carry, you know, an air quote weapon, including how to arm yourself when you have to pass through a TSA checkpoint. I got a bunch of ideas, and it'll probably spur some more. I'd love to hear y'all's ideas that this one spurs. We'll get to that and all of that in just a minute. First, let's go ahead and take a look at our quote of the day. Again, this is Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. Um, I have been fond of quoting the Supreme Court Justice, it was his son, uh, Wendell Holmes Jr., um, with the statement of the right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins. Um, unfortunately, 
for his son, a lot of what he had to say as a justice was used to justify some pretty horrible things as well. I, I've always liked that quote, though, and I quote the truth wherever I find it, regardless of whether I agree with the totality of the individual. Holmes Sr. is a guy that if you actually look into him and his work, he was a writer, uh, a poet, a doctor, um, pretty amazing person uh, throughout the 1800s. Flawed like anybody, but I actually kind of like him better than his son. Um, said some really, really spot-on interesting things. And, boy, nothing hits on the stuff that I try to teach on this show, especially when it comes to dealing with regulations and rules and taxes, um, more than this quote. I'm fond of saying that the tax code, and I don't have a video here in front of me, so I can't show you a video camera, but if I hold my hands way, way apart, it's a huge stack of papers. That's how big the tax code is. But a little bitty about three-quarters of an inch of that tax code is what you have to do, and the rest of it is how you get out of doing it. I mean, that's, that's how they write the tax code, because they write the tax code for themselves and their buddies. Well, what Mr. Holmes said about that, and he said this before we had an income tax, by the way, because he was dead by the 1890s. He said, the young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions. The young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions. See, the exceptions are the 10%. Everybody says focus on the 80 to 90% of where results come from. That's fine until you've achieved the results, the differentiator, the thing that makes you switch from being... So you focus on 80%, right? Then you perform at the top of the 80%. But that's Pareto's law. 20% of the people get 80% of the results, right? So you can be the top of the 80% that gets 20% of the results. But when you learn to focus on the little things, the 20%, and within that 20%, the 10 and the 5 the exceptions, how to get around situations. That's how you move from being the top of the group that gets 20% into some portion of the group, no matter what it is, that gets 80. And a portion of 80 is always better than a portion of 20. And that really can be exemplified in this simple quote. Again, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions. Just before we go ahead and introduce Sean Mills with our first question of the day, last reminder, tomorrow morning, set the alarm clock so it goes, wah, 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 wah. get up, get online, log into the MSB, and get your tickets for TSP Fall 19. They're going on sale, and the clamoring has begun. I have been asked to put the fix in for a number of folks already, people I really like. I can't put the fix in for you. I can't do it. Okay, everybody has to go jump ball on this. It is unfair for me to sell tickets early to people when I always sell out. So there's going to be, I think I'm going to sell 38 tickets in round one. And then when I look at how it all comes in, if I got enough people carpooling and taking Uber and stuff like that, and I count the vehicles that are going to be here, if there's more space, maybe I'll open a few more. So that's how it's going to go down. Nine o'clock. Central Standard Time. Thou shalt get online and thou shalt buy thy tickets or thou shalt end up sad. All right? You might not end up sad, but it's very possible that you shalt. All right? 
last morning. So now let's get into it. We have a question on off-grid living, actually really being on-grid and beginning to move toward an off-grid transition along with Tesla's vaulted solar panel solar tile, whatever the hell, roof mechanism, which is kind of a scam, and you'll hear why. With that, Sean, tell us all about these two issues. Hey, everybody out there in TSP land. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I've got a couple expert counsel questions from MeWe today. Uh, the first one's from Molly. Molly says, how would a person currently on grid best begin a transition to off-grid or at least producing some of their own energy in a typical home in America today? Hey Molly, that's a good question. I'd say the very first thing you need to do is look for ways to reduce your on-grid usage. Get used to living much closer to whatever the ambient temperature is outside. On a 100 degree day, you should get used to your home being about 80 degrees inside and look to spend some time outside in the shade or in a body of water near your home. Maybe even turn the AC off and explore uh, just using a box fan to cool your body instead of an AC unit to cool the whole house. Uh, in the winter, if you can, burn wood for heat. And if not, maybe program your thermostat to let it get a little cool, colder than you normally would in the morning before coming back up to temperature. This approximates your wood fire dying out and having to rekindle it in the morning. Uh, now those are some easy to explain preferences that you can change uh, to kind of begin the transition. I always tell everyone the very first thing you want to look to do is reduce your usage and get used to being either hot, hotter than you're used to being or colder than you're used to being depending on what uh, part of the country that you live in. Um, now as for actually producing some of your own energy, I think going solar on an outbuilding is a nice way to start. Maybe take your chicken coop or your garage off the grid and run off run it off of a small system uh, that goes you know panels through a charge controller to a battery bank to an inverter to whatever you need it for or maybe for a chicken coop even a small panel going to a fan or a light uh, or something to actuate a door to let the chickens in and out that would be something that would be small it's something that you can learn how to understand uh, or learn how to maintain your batteries understand how to operate and troubleshoot the system, get a better understanding of how it works. Uh, you know, you're going to start nerding out a little bit on, okay, well, if it's a cloudy day in the morning versus a cloudy day in the afternoon, how does I impact my production? And then you can turn that into actually changing the way uh, you actually use your appliances, which is what we do when we're off grid is we use things when the sun's out, we've got excess energy and we don't use them when it's not. Um, now during the spring and the fall when it's nice outside, maybe go flip the main breaker in the house for about 24 hours at a time and learn to operate your home when there's no power. Now that could be just hooking a generator up and running a few things off the gener generator. Or it could be saying, you know what, let's go completely powerless for 24 hours, throw some blankets over the refrigerator and the chest freezer, and uh, let's just live off the grid for 24 hours in our own house and see what it's like you know read by candles uh, I've found when when I'm you know when it's nice and I can have the window open and hear the bugs outside and have a nice beeswax candle to read by that's a pretty peaceful after evening and um, there's not a whole lot of things when you're connected to the grid that kind of give you that um, connection to the past so to speak 
so I hope that helps you out, Molly. On to Tom. Tom has a question. Uh, he wants my opinion on the Tesla roof tiles. Are they viable? Will they ever be if they are not yet viable? Do they even make sense, etc.? Hey, Tom, my opinion is that the solar roof tile was a publicity stunt meant to rile up investors during the Tesla acquisition of Solar City, which cost $5 billion. Um, it was really just a thing to say, hey, don't kill our stock price for making a bad decision and bailing my cousins out. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what they did. Um, now, as far as I can tell, uh, and I've tried to read up on this a little bit, since 2017 when this product was announced, there have been 12, count them, 12 solar tile roofs installed and connected to the grid in the United States. And all of them are in Northern California, right near Tesla's HQ. Here's the problem with a solar roof tile. You need economies of scale in order to make them cost effective. You know, our, your standard solar, mo solar modules have been manufactured in mass for decades. Um, last year, 4.2 billion watts of solar was installed around the world. Um, you know, compare that to 12 roofs, right? Um, Panasonic, who's the person that's actually making the cells, they're the manufacturing partner with Tesla for the solar tile. They're shipping most of those sales that were earmarked for the solar roof tiles overseas because there's no demand. Uh, part of the reason, as far as I can tell, that there's no demand is that these tiles have an infinity warranty. So they, they say uh, infinity or the life cycle of your house, whichever one comes first. That's what the warranty is. Uh, Elon Musk has mentioned on several investor calls that that's part of what's slowing growth. They're working through the R&D piece. Uh, to try to come up with essentially an indestructible solar panel uh, that looks like a tile, you know, uh, they're not there yet. Uh, so, so you've got a product that's never going to pay for itself. Okay, you put it on your roof, you're never going to get to the place where it pays for itself. Um, even if you could buy it, which you can't. Uh, and the manufacturing partner that's making the sales is selling off its stock overseas. Okay. Now, that might sound like a great product to someone that lives in a $4 million house in San Francisco who's in dire need of another virtue signal for the week. But for the rest of the market, this is a product I don't think is ever, we're ever going to see. Uh, we're never going to see the solar roof tile uh, at scale in the United States. It just doesn't make sense financially. And as long as, you know, as long as we're making our decisions based on whether they make sense financially, uh, which, you know, the government can do whatever they want to do. Uh, but us consumers, you know, we're going to do the right thing most of the time, or at least try to, and uh, there's just no path forward for this technology. So uh, to wrap it up, they're definitely not viable now. Uh, you can't even get them, and I don't think they ever will be. So, Tom, if you're holding your breath for a, for a Tesla solar roof, uh, start looking into the regular PV panels, man. They work way better. They're way cheaper, way easier to install. And you can pit different manufacturers and installers against each other to get the best price instead of having to go through Tesla. All right, guys. Well, hey, if you got any other questions, get them in the Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. He's going to get them over to me, and I'll get them answered for you. Thanks, and have a great one. You know, I, I, I totally agree on the Tesla thing. When that came out, I thought, well, that's interesting. But the more I learned about it, the more I realized it didn't work. Now, does that mean that we will never come up with a, with a roof tile that makes sense as a solar collector? 
My answer to that is I don't know, but I don't know that it makes any sense. And so what I would add to Sean's as to why you probably won't see it is this. If you look at something like solar panels, the and really I think it's better we call them solar collectors because that's what they are, right? They're collectors, and it puts us more in touch with the fact that their purpose is to collect the sun's energy. And while efficiency got better and better and better and better and better, uh, what solar panel makers have been uh, working on, because they've gotten about as efficient as they can with modern tech now, is to produce uh, cheaper. So uh, there's not a huge amount going into right now to, you know, how can we up the, you know, the efficiency of the solar collector? But eventually we'll swing back to that. We'll make them as cheap as we can. And then once everybody's competing on cost, then you have to start building features. Benefits tell, features sell. It's a sales and marketing formula. So it's very possible that the panels you're putting on now might be something you want to replace in 10 years. And that doesn't mean necessarily having to put a new roof on. So I think panels have a lot more flexibility than something like an integrated construction uh, component to a house. The other reason that they even went this way, I think, beyond the publicity, was if you make it a building material, it's a lot easier to put into the mortgage of a home. And maybe they thought it would work, but it just doesn't. It just doesn't work. I'm sorry. I wish it did because it would be really cool if it did. Uh, it's kind of up there with solar windows in, in office buildings. We'll put solar collecting windows in these glass buildings. It works, but it doesn't work good enough to pay for itself. And and you can have all these fantasies about nirvana that you want. In the end, money is a symbol for energy. I ascribe to what's known as thermal economics. And so people will say, well, we have to look at the earth return or whatever. No. See, if something is, let's put it this way, something could be economically viable and not ecologically viable. That is true. But if it is not economically viable, it's probably also not ecologically viable. So you can go one way, but the other way is almost never possible. Uh, with that, we got another one here. This one for Patrick Rorman of MT Knives on sharpening and caring for a cookery-style knife. Hey, guys. This is Patrick Rorman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week question comes from Letty Lou on MeWe. She says, what's the best way to keep my kukri sharp? I'm not too sure if she was asking, uh, like, how to preserve the edge or how to sharpen the edge, but I'll answer them both. So for keeping it sharp, you want to avoid letting that edge come in contact with anything that's harder than itself. Uh, keep it out of the dirt. Keep it from striking a rock. A lot of times kukris are used similar to machete, chopping down large limbs. And uh, so you want a pretty robust edge on them. <clears throat> and a lot of times when people think of something like that, they tend to abuse it because they think, oh, it's a big, strong knife and I can do whatever I want with it. Well, the edge, uh, <laughs> if you want to prolong that edge and keep it sharp as long as possible, you need to treat it with care. Another thing you can do is to avoid uh, to keep that edge clean and oiled. 
over time. A lot of kukaris are a high carbon steel blade and they will rust and corrode and that edge is real fine and will be one of the first things to oxidize or to rust and lose its sharpness. So now as far as sharpening it goes, it's a convex edge. And so you need something that can get into that convex edge and, and sharpen it. So what the best tools for something like that would be a diamond rod, a ceramic rod, or something like a chainsaw file. Now, most kukaris come with a pretty robust blade, unsharpened, and there's a lot of steel to move, remove to get a good edge on them. Um, the good thing is, is you're going to have a pretty obtuse angle and that's going to be less steel that you have to remove from that edge. With, with it, you could break that blade down in a couple different sections and actually have some sections of the blade that are a finer edge for whittling or doing some fine detail work. And then the center to the, the front of the blade you want a pretty robust edge on because that's where you're going to do a lot of your heavy chopping and cutting. The knife's a lot like a baseball bat. It's got a sweet spot, and that kukri has a lot of the weight out towards the tip, moving that sweet spot out further on the blade. So as you use it, you'll kind of find where that sweet spot is, where if you're chopping down some two- or three-inch limbs, you'll you'll know you'll start to find that spot that really um, just penetrates and drives right through those big old limbs so i hope this answers your question if you uh, would like me to sharpen it feel free or if you have any questions feel free to email me uh, depending on the condition of the blade something like that could take a lot of work and I could get an edge established on it and be easier for you to maintain and keep it um, keep it at that level of sharpness once the initial work is done. So thanks for the question, and I hope you guys have a great week. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. What I'm about to give you now on kukaris is just my opinion, but I think it's a pretty valid one. If you want a kukri knife for bushcrafting and stuff like that, go ahead. But I think there are infinitely better tools or a combination thereof for it. I think kukris are cool. I have a couple. Don't get me wrong. But do you know what a kukri is designed to be? It is designed to be a knife that has the ability to take a limb off somebody like a sword. That That's what it's for. That's why it was developed. It is a fighting knife. And it is one of the best fighting knives that's ever been designed. It is still carried uh, by troops of the, the Nepalese troops, especially like their version of special operations and things like that. There's a story from not that many years ago of a woman that was in Nepal, and she was on a bus or a train or something like that, and there was a Nepalese soldier, and the only thing he had on him as far as armament was a kukri. And several men tried to rape her, and he was, like, really outnumbered, but not outgunned, but I guess he was still apprehensive. And she said something to the effect of, treat me like your sister or save me like I'm your sister or something like that. And it 
it clicked something in his brain that this woman, who he was already concerned for, this was a good guy, but she was somebody's sister. And he said something to the effect of, in that moment, she became my sister. And he pulled out his kookery. And the guys that were going to rape this young girl, I think it was like six of them, basically had the attitude of, there's six of us and one of you with a knife. And there were pieces of arm missing, there were fingers missing, there were throats cut, and when this ended, this girl was not harmed and neither was this Nepalese soldier. And this is a real, oh, I remember I covered this, This is I vet, when I cover a story, I vet it. This was not some urban legend. And this one dude with a kookery took apart six men that were hell-bent on raping a girl. And I, if I remember correctly, like four of them ended up dead. That's what a kookery's for. So I'm not putting it down. I'm just suggesting that fine work and stuff like that isn't really what they were designed to do. Now, there's kookery pattern machetes that make a pretty good machete if you wanted a machete anyway type thing. Um, but they're, they're a knife designed to kill people with. It's not that they don't do other things. It's what they do best because it's what they were made to do. All right, next up, uh, we had Gary Collins talk about you know, making adjustments and taking care of yourself when you have to work the night shift. And I played uh, the Commodores for you. I'm not going to do it again this week, though I feel like doing it because I love that song. I'm going to have to work that song into the rotation as an audible soon. That's one of my favorite songs. I mean, we need to talk about the, uh, the, the real things behind that song because uh, it's just... This is an amazing song. We have to do a Commodore's Week, honestly. Um, at least Lionel Richie and the Commodore's Week. Anyway, um, but I figured this was one that could go to Bones and Gary because they would have different approaches to it or different thoughts on it. So with that, I got the old man up out of his bed and uh, he wiped the dribble off his chin and he's going to talk to us about uh, working the night shift. Bones, what's up? All right, next up I got a question for our vehicle maintenance expert, Uh Derek Monpietro. I remember he can probably take some questions on generators and things like that as well. Uh, but we have two questions he put together in one answer. One is on making modifications to a truck when you go to oversized tires. A lot of people think you just throw bigger tires on it and it's fine. I mean, maybe your speedometer might be off a little bit. But things change. We have things called ratios uh, when it comes to vehicles. And when we make a wheel bigger, it changes things with gearing and stuff like that. So we got a question from Tactical Redneck on that that he's going to handle. Uh, we got a question on the maintenance and care and extending the life of something called a CV boot. So with that, Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Not only is it Friday, but it's a twofer Friday. Got a couple of quick questions here. I'm going to go through. Thank you guys for the backlog, so let's get into it. Tactical Redneck writes in, I have an 84 Toyota pickup. When swapped tires to 33, I did all my research and modified everything else necessary to accommodate the change in tire size. That truck still gets 21 miles to the gallon. So if you were to make such a modification, what research would you do to ensure everything was done correctly? Well, Tactical Redneck, I don't have to do any research because I've built a couple of those trucks myself. They're quite an awesome platform. The 84 is really highly sought after with the straight front axle. You've got the 22RE, even though it's carbureted, still a really good engine. Uh, the biggest thing with running 33s on that drive line is going to be the gearing. Those engines make absolutely no power whatsoever, and even though that's a great, reliable engine, the gearing is what kills you. You're going to find you lose a lot of power, even though you're still holding strong at 21 miles to the gallon. So the best way to restore all of that is to change the gear ratios. So truck probably came with four tens in the axles. 
I would maybe think 488s would be a good good combination. 529s probably a little too deep unless you stepped up to some 35s. So 488s good combination. That's going to restore the power, give you the 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 best use of fifth gear on the highway, and just keep the truck happy, good acceleration, all that all that good stuff. Now I don't know what other modifications you've done other than the tires, but even with uh, a step up from like the stock 31 to a 33 you probably don't even have a lift or just a little bit of a lift so the steering is probably halfway decent still but uh, that particular steering arrangement if you go to a crossover steering will drive much better and handle much better um, but maybe not so necessary with the 33s but certainly i'd consider it to be an option but other than that like the driveline angles you know with that low of lift or tire height you're probably not going to get into maybe extending drive shafts and all the other stuff like the brake lines being too short so i would say really just focus on the gearing and if you do have to re-gear maybe think about a limited slip or a locking differential i've owned trucks with 33s up to 37s on that toyota platform and i've put in straight axles on later model rigs and they become unstoppable with the gearing and the lockers and a little bit of skid plating underneath. With 33s, you probably still are keeping the tire out of the back of the front fender, but when you start to move up to a little bit bigger tire, or if you have really offset wheels, you're going to find that the rubber is going to hit the fender when you fully compress it. And really the only easy way out of this is to cut into the rocker panel where it comes into the fender and kind of chop it back a little bit doing some metal work, or you can push the front axle forward. You can actually re-drill the spring perch that's on the axle housing and give yourself another about an inch. And if you re-drill the hole that locates the axle on the leaf spring, you can push the axle forward an additional inch and you can actually gain enough clearance to run a two-inch larger tire. So by doing that, you gain a lot more clearance without having to lift the truck up any taller. Um, so I don't know where you're at with the 33s if you're running any, any kind of interference, but you can push the front axle forward. Be aware, though, if you're running the stock steering and you're not doing crossover, you can run into some problems with that. So avoid that with the stock steering. You'll also have to extend the front drive shaft about an inch as well because you're moving the front axle forward. And then you're going to start extending the shaft too far. So you have to lengthen that in order to accommodate that move. But it's a great modification if you've got bigger wheels and you don't want to start hacking fenders up uh, to make them clear. Thanks for the question. Next question comes from Jeff. Is there anything you can do to extend the life of rubber boots on CV joints? And what Jeff's talking about is the front drive axles on an independent suspension four-wheel drive truck or the typical car. Details. I was changing oil today and noticed both sides of my front end have torn boots again. These are about maybe three to four years old, maybe less. Had this problem with other cars too. Once the rubber goes, it's just a matter of time before a perfectly good axle goes bad. Plus, it's really messy. I think this is built-in obsolescence. Many years ago, I was talking to a random guy in a bar, and he said he was a chemical engineer, and his job was to develop dashboard materials that would last four and a half years because the average car payment was five years, and they wanted it to look shitty while you were still used to making payments. Don't know if that was true, but never forgot that. And I'm sure some of that might have been a little bit of, uh, of liquid conversation taking place, but... Vehicles do have a bit of planned in obsolescence. The biggest thing is that if the boots are ripping, if you catch them before all the grease comes out, you can actually reboot a factory axle. So you can go to your dealership or online. You can get the factory boot kit and take the shaft out and reboot it, which is a great option because the factory half shafts are actually really good quality, even though the boots might not be. So in my opinion, if you have the original half shaft and the car doesn't have a gazillion miles on it, I'd probably reboot it. Now, having said that, you can buy half shafts nowadays for $50 to $75, complete assembly, 
brand new, and even though they're not the greatest quality, that's really cheap money. And so rebooting an axle when the boot kits 20, 30, 40 bucks and a brand new shaft, even though it's aftermarket, is in the 50 to $75 range. Well, you guessed it. Most people are going to go and just swap the whole thing in. Now, there's really not much you can do. You're stuck with what you're stuck with. You can probably get some aftermarket options for some higher quality stuff if you want to spend some more money on the boots or the premium axle shaft. But if the other one's split in five years, I'm going to guess that you're probably going to get another five years. You can spray them with silicone, maybe every oil change or something, and just try to keep them clean. But the reality is, hey, they're rubber. They're going to split. Um, this can also become aggravated if the vehicles are lifted and the shafts are running at a steeper angle. I don't know what you've got, but on a car or a regular stock vehicle, um, that's just your normal wear and tear stuff. Now, a couple of hints. If you're going to reboot the factory axle, sometimes you can get away with keeping the inboard part of the shaft in the differential housing. And so what you would do is undo the big nut at the end of the uh, wheel bearing pop one of the lower ball joints or upper ball joints or whatever your means of getting the steering knuckle out of the way, and you're going to yank that thing up and over and get it off of the end of the CV shaft. So now you've got the bare CV shaft just sticking out of the differential. You're going to use your side cutters and clip the uh, clamp that holds the inner boot, and you're going to actually slide it out with all of its guts. Now it's going to make a mess. There's grease that's going to fall out, so have a catch pan there. And we want to make sure that the joint that's in there doesn't just fall away and all the needles start going all over the place. So you want to make sure you're wearing gloves and you're going to hold the thing and you're going to clean it all up. You're going to be stuck with the metal inboard joint that's still stuck in the differential. Wipe that out, put some fresh grease in there, and then you're going to rebuild the half shaft with your new boot kit. And then you're going to slide it back in and reclamp it. And that saves you from having to pop that piece out of the differential and can probably cut the job down uh, almost in half the amount of time. So hope that tip helps you. Otherwise, just swap the whole thing out. Thanks, guys, again, for all the questions. On the AffordableDCGenerator.com webpage, in another week or two, I'll have the build sheet for the power box that I just did the video series on. So if you're interested in doing that, you'll have some pricing and all the part numbers available on Amazon. And I'm also going to start a video on using some inverters to do backup power for your things like uh, furnaces, refrigerators, all of those critical loads so when the power goes out you've got your power box and you've got your inverter set up ready to go for instant power backup so look forward to that video coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, if you subscribe to my website i'll send out a newsletter when all that stuff comes available thanks guys have a good one next up kind of a fun one let's say in the words of warren zevon from lawyers guns and money the shit has indeed Hit the fan, and you need your battle rifle to take on everybody from the invading Russians who are invading central Colorado in a 1984 Red Dawn scenario to the zombies who seek to eat your brains. And you can only grab one weapon for a shit hit the fan. And in front of you, you have two options. The choice of rebels throughout the world, the only thing that really works that communism ever created, the AK-47, or the battle-tested, battle-hardened, used as a sniper rifle and more, M1A. Which one would you pick and why? JR, what would you pick and why? Hey, TSP, JR here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearm-related. Today, I'm fielding a question from Chris. He's looking for just for fun musing on being in a shit hit the fan situation, go to war, red ton type of scenario. 
given the AK-47 or the M1A, which would I go with? So heavy on the self-defense in a local societal collapse and also procurement of any medium-sized game. Well, Chris, you asked. Jack obliged, so I will deliver. First, let me give some examples of shit hit the fan as I see it that are not as fictional as one might fantasize but have happened in recent memory within the U.S. Ferguson, Missouri, civil unrest following the Michael Brown shooting in 2014. It was time to bug out of that city and wait for things to cool off, man. That place was a powder keg. Uh, Shortly after that, 2015, after the death of Freddie Gray, while in police custody, city of Baltimore had a whole bunch of violent protests, assaults, vandalism, burglary, arson, and so on and so on. Just another example of a city that was being terrorized by people that had no respect for their fellow men. And you saw the city and the law enforcement officials make decisions to just court on the violence, to contain it and just let it burn itself out instead of confronting it head on. Totally abandoning all the people and the property within the cordon to the winds of the people doing the violence. Um, should I mention the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, 1992? been a long time, so let's cover just the fly-by statistics on that one. 63 people killed, 9 by law enforcement, 2,383 people reported injuries. Property damage was somewhere between $800 million and $1 billion, and that was in 1992 money. When we have widespread national disasters, we see society start to kind of break down in large populated areas. So shit hit the fan in Katrina. We saw a lot of widespread looting after the event. Same thing with Hurricane Sandy out up in the northeast in 2012. The 2011 blizzard that hit Atlanta saw police stop responding to vehicle accidents and struggle to even respond to medical emergencies because all the roads were blocked with stalled cars that were just stacked up end to end. Along with that, they had widespread power outages that knocked out the ability for people to be able to get their food stamps or to even use them to purchase good. And that saw a lot more civil unrest come after that, too. Uh, I personally went through the 1999 Oklahoma City May 3rd F5 tornado that came through there and the subsequent recovery efforts that we had in the communities involved. I bugged out that the path of the storm that night. But after it dissipated, I turned right back around and we went back into helping with recovery. I saw some community members in small areas set up cordons with guard stations and roadblocks to allow only community members into those areas to help keep the looters out of the neighborhood. Police hadn't got control of those areas at that time, so some of those switched on community members said, hey, we got this, and that was what they set up. So really, I share all those things so that hopefully you guys, you hear shit hit the fan or Red Dawn, you're like, I'm tuning out. That crap, that's not really a thing. Um, it most definitely, you know, may not be the 1984 movie where the Russians and the Cubans invade the American mainland and a bunch of high school kids do guerrilla warfare campaigns to save their little town in Colorado. But there are certainly localized examples, like the ones that I shared, that can really put us and our loved ones in danger and are worth having contingency plans for. All right, Chris, so what firearm? Well, 
you gave me two rifles to compare, so I'm going to stick with that. So the AK-47 and the M1A. With the parameters that you put forth with civil defense, or with self-defense and civil unrest, I'm going to tell you, man, I'm going to go with the AK every time on this one. And it's a, it's a real simple answer. It has to do with weight. Uh, they're both 30 caliber rounds. One is 7.62 by 3.9 millimeters. The other is 7.62 by 5.1 millimeters. 100 rounds of 122 grain full metal jacket AK ammo weighs 3.63 pounds. 100 rounds of 168 grain full metal jacket ammo, which is your 308, weighs 5.35 pounds. So when it comes to the rounds being effective on taking out an assailant, the extra power and the range of the 308 round for doing that effectively just doesn't outweigh for me what the 762x39's ability to do it when you take into account having to carry around the heavier ammo and the heavier rifle to get that extra range and power. So, you, yeah, I do give up some range on the AK, but for me, if I have a reason to shoot a person over 100 yards away, it better be a damn good reason, man. I mean, we are talking like University of Texas clock tower, Las Vegas music festival shooting from the hotel overlooking the event, something drastic like that. Um, the AK can do reliable work out to 200 yards without excessive holdover, but you do need to train those holdovers to be really reliable and repeatable at it. And think about this, man. Do our special operations forces in the U.S. run 308 in their primary rifles? Like the answer is just simply they don't. It's heavy, man. And let's say you're doing patrols in your neighborhood in full kit. Let's say you're carrying seven magazines, six on your chest, one in the rifle. As many of us know that have carried rifles 99.9% of the time, that's what we're doing. We're carrying the freaking rifle. And it gets heavy, man. So at some point, you can't put the rifle down, but then something's got to give. You're like, i got to get some weight off. So you're sitting there, and you're thinking to yourself, like, meh, seven mags. I'll be okay with six today or maybe five. Man, I, I don't need everything in my first aid kit. I, I can part that down some. I got I need my beef jerky. I got to have my water. You know what? I really don't need my back armor plate. I mean, come on. Who's going to run away from a fight anyways? If I'm going to get shot at, I'm going to get shot in the front, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you start peeling off these things because you have so much on that. So, yeah. And I'll tell you, I own an M1 Garand and I own an AR-10. I love them both, but they are super heavy, man. So that's the way I would go. I would end up go going with the AK. But... If you're going to go 308, just like Zombieland, rule number one, man, cardio. If you want to beast mode it, go right ahead. Sun's out, gun's out, man. This is just one man's opinion on this. So thanks for the question, Chris. And uh, also great to hear about your lever gun modernization, too. And now for another man's opinion. Back to you, Jack. Um, I completely agree, and I'm going to tell you that especially in any sort of urban conflict environment, the big advantage that a 308, let's not even worry about the, the platforms, but a 308 has over a 76239, an AK round, or any round uh, that's you know of a lesser uh, range, is range. 
So if I have to shoot somebody in the face at 300 meters and you give me a choice between an AK and an M1A, I'm going to take the M1A, but I'm not defending myself if I'm shooting somebody in the face at 300 meters. That's true fantasy. Um, it was mostly AK-47s and SKSs that uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the Asian, Vietnamese, etc., Korean merchants uh, armed themselves with during the Rodney King riots, and their shit got left alone. I'm just going to put it to you that way. Um, I would also, even though we were in this case kind of stuck on looking at only these two things, AR platform rate, you know, I, I would probably go AR over AK, because uh, I don't plan on dragging my weapon through the mud. And uh, in the end, like, for urban defense, the shotgun is hard to beat. Shotguns are fight stoppers. Um, big time. Big time. And you can look at ballistic studies that have been done of people that actually have been shot, not in the movies, and you can see that while all rifles have a much better fight-stopping uh, uh, capability uh, than than all handguns. That's just a thing. It's just the way it is. Uh, in in the real world where people actually get shot, the the thing that has the highest rating, home invasion stuff like that, real world, with one shot. And if that person ain't dead, they're at least not doing anything anymore. That's a threat. Is the shotgun. Now you don't have quite the ammo advantage, but my belief is that in a real world scenario, you're probably not humping through the the outback. On a daily basis, uh, you're holed up somewhere. So shotguns make fights no more. Uh, that brings us to uh, my uh, question for you today. And it was spurred by a prior question and then a follow-up. So let's do the follow-up first. So Jason from PA said, Everyday carry for when weapons are not allowed. My father has a hardwood cane with a solid brass ball handle. It's one of the few heirlooms I look forward to having come my way. I'd take it in a fight over most any knife due to range, bludgeon, and it's legal, etc. Canes used to be common, but as a walking aid and a fashion accessory for men, and likely for the same reason, self-defense. Here's the thing. Canes fall under medical equipment. As such, not only are they restricted from not restricted from carry, they're actually protected. Carry it right onto a plane even, as most Americans are overweight. That alone is justification medically. For intermittent cane use, officer, why do you have a cane? Self, my knee, foot, ankle occasionally acts up, so I keep it on hand when needed. Found this on Amazon. It's just a handle, which allows someone to mount it to a solid oak dowel from Home Depot and a rubber cap, also available at Home Depot. So um, for just a few bucks, you can have a, a walking cane. And so I want to talk about a bunch of stuff with this, with, with the concept of being armed when weapons aren't permitted. And before I even do that, though, I want to clear something up. J Jason says an officer or inspector or whatever, you know, get on a plane, whether it's a cop on the street, why do you have a cane? The answer to that, if you're going to be a complete dick, would be none of your effing business. Because there's literally nothing they can do. Because it is protected under the ADA. And you owe them no explanation whatsoever as to why you have a cane. Because that's questioning your disability, which you may or may not have. Your disability may be that you don't like walking around with a cane. It's still protected under the ADA as medical equipment. So what Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense, uh, Fortress Defense says is that the only response you really need to give to that is, I'm sorry, are you discriminating against me? Because that's the end of it. And you might want to be a little nicer, but if it's pushed at all, 
That's what I'd say. I'm sorry, I have a disability. Are you discriminating against me? And we're done with that. So let's just start out there. So now I want to even go a little bit further back in time than recent times and explain that this is where many classic martial arts weapons and many classic historical things come from. So if we look at martial arts weaponry, and you know, if you're a Ninja Turtles fan because you're young enough to have been, or you're like me and you had kids that were, you know, you know that you know you had one Ninja Turtle had the nunchucks, and another Ninja Turtle had a scythe, and another Ninja Turtle I think had commas, right? So let's just talk about those three things and what they were and why they became weapons of the peasantry. So the nunchuck was basically a flailing tool. The nunchuck is a flailing weapon. You see all the spins and stuff, and I can do all that shit. I love it. I grew up as a kid. I grew up on Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is why I got into martial arts. For, for an old man, I, I'd kind of shock you at some of the shit that I can do with, with nunchucks. And even with a lot of those doing striking moves, and I've, you know, I've done some demos and stuff with striking a heavy bag with nunchucks where most people get their arms busted. If you know how to do it, all that stuff can work. But as a, as a weapon, the advantage of nunchucks is inertial carryover and distance is a flailing weapon. It's just for beating the shit out of people. What, what it was for is beating the shit out of, of sheaves of rice. So they would cut the rice and hang it up, and you took and, and the, the first tools basically were one long handle, a short chain, and a small. So it was odd compared to the current nunchucks. Of course, maybe somebody with shorter arms would need two short sticks, and they would take it and they'd beat the rice while it was hung up, and then the grain would separate from the dried rice and fall to the ground. And that's where that came from. Now, of course, you needed to cut the rice in the first place, so the commas were nothing but a hand sickle. And then once you had all your material ready to go, you needed to move it somewhere. Maybe you had an ox, some sort of livestock, horse, uh, whatever it was, and then you needed a way to attach that that rigging to a cart that the horse pulled. And the easiest thing was to create an eye and a coupling where two pieces came together and you had a pin that went in there, and that's where the side came from. So if you look at those three classic martial arts weapons, they all come from agricultural usage. And the peasantry was barred the use of arms. Only the samurai class, for instance, in Japan, especially like when we talk about like the Edo period or whatever, was allowed to carry a sword. That was the arms of the day. And the peasant could not carry a sword, which left the peasant undefended. So the peasant took the oxen pin and the hand sickle, and the rice flail, and many other things that we think of as weapons today in martial arts, and turned them into weaponry and developed a fighting style with them. If we look at places like Ireland, where also people were disavowed the use of arms, the shillelagh became a weapon, and it was a walking stick. Even in the Orient, you go back to the, the bow staff, was a walking staff. And the powers that be knew that they could only push the populace so far, even in a feudal system, before it would result in actual problems with the weapons in rebellion. So it's like we can't take away their oxen pins and their rice flails and their walking sticks and their staffs. So the concept of being told thou cannot have a weapon and then improvising weaponry is as old as civilization, as old as the power of the state to tell you you can't have a weapon. So it's just a way to come at this. So I'll give you a couple ideas. One, I love 
the, the walking cane as a weapon. Before I give you some thoughts on that, I want to give you the number one weakness to having a cane as a weapon. It is highly visible, and the person attacking you knows you have it, which means it is the first thing that they're going to worry about defusing. Now, if you use it properly, it doesn't matter much. The number two problem I have with walking canes as weapons is most canes are far too light to be effective weapons. You need to understand the cane. There's all kinds of finesse moves that can be done with canes and staffs and all, but it's an impact weapon. You want something that if you hit somebody in the shin, it either it hurts at minimum really bad and or breaks or cracks or fractures at least a bone. Or if you hit a joint. And the number one place to strike with a cane or any impact tool especially when you're trying to get away and you have distance on your side, is bone, right? Cops will often strike if they're trying to gain compliance and they're not just trying to kill somebody on the fatty part of the body for pain compliance with something like a baton because it won't break bone as easily if you do that. Somebody's trying to kill you, somebody's trying to hurt you, and you didn't start the fight, screw them. You want to hit bone. I have a pretty good video of a guy talking about using a cane for defense. Now, his whole purpose in life is to sell you on his method of using a cane for defense and to sell you his canes. I'm going to say that so you don't get suckered into that, but the points he makes in this particular video are extremely valid, and he does the kind of training I like to do. You know, you do this thing that you saw on, on, on YouTube, and next thing you know, you're getting stabbed in the guts with a knife. Because you didn't use the advantage that the tool gave you. So there's that. I have a, a cane, a couple canes for you to look at in the show notes. They're available on Amazon. And I have one called the Bubba Stick, which is exactly the handle that Jason is talking about already mounted on a stick. And I'll put a link to where you can get just the brass knob as well. The brass knob concept on a cane is an amazingly powerful impact weapon. But... Generally, if you think about the way you carry a cane, that knob, the handle, whatever, is the handle of the sword, and the, the shaft is the main impact tool because it's not like you get to get ready and rev up like you're fixing to hit a baseball when you end up in a self-defense scenario. So while I love having a good, solid impact tool on the handle, I want the whole damn thing to be a good weapon. So I want weight in it. So something like an oak dowel, you bet your ass. You get your ass spanked hard with an oak dowel, you're thinking about what you've done wrong. Now, let's talk about something else you can actually get onto an airplane. So do you not hear announcements that constantly tell you to keep your bag secure when you're at an airport? Sure you do. Don't you see people sleeping in chairs at airports all the time, conked out, or on the floor with their head on a bag or something like that? Sure you do. So it would make sense that when you fall asleep in an airport, you have a way to secure your bag so nobody can rock away with it or put something in it without your knowledge. So what you do is you get yourself a small chain and a lock. And you don't want to get something that looks like something a biker carries around. But you don't. it doesn't need to be. 18 inches, small, small uh, lock, and you keep it in your luggage, your carry-on luggage. If you're asked by TSA, why do you have this, which you might be, well, I travel a lot. And I sleep in airports. So I, when I fall asleep sitting in a chair or something like that, I lock my bag to the chair so that no one can steal it and so that no one can interfere with it. Because I care about our airline safety just as much as you do, sir. I'm the one who has to actually get on a plane. Done. There's no prohibition against carrying that on a plane. 
So that is a hell of a flailing whip. But hell, if it worked for uh, for Joe Biden to, 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 to hold off corn pop, which actually turns out to probably be a true story, a weird one to tell, but probably is a true story, it just might work for you if you end up needing to defend yourself in an air, airport or on an airplane or something like that. Another thing that works very much the same way and can be made into a key fob with a quick pull so that your, your parachute cord, so if you look up, there's ways to braid paracord so it looks like a key fob, but if you grab it and yank, it comes right out to be a long piece of string again. Quick deployment. Okay. So what you do is you go get yourself like a half-inch lug nut, and you make yourself a key fob that can be quickly pulled to become a long string, and you put a lug nut around that at the end of it. If anybody asks you what that is, you know I used to race cars, and that was off my last car I raced. It's a good luck charm. All right, well, you pull that out, and now you've got about a one-foot-long rope. You've got your keys as a handle, and you've got a very substantial piece of metal, and you've got the ability to get a lot of inertia, and if you smack somebody in the face with that, it is painful. Additionally, if you grab the nut, you've got two handles now, and you get that shit around somebody's neck, and you've got a garrote. Totally legal, not prohibited by TSA, and works places other than TSA and airplanes as well. Okay, so those are like, it's really truly an improvised weapon. Now, if you carry a small, you know, go bag, day bag, whatever around with you, I suggest that you carry a small assortment of tools in that bag. And I suggest, and it'll look perfectly logical, that if you had some screwdrivers and an impact wrench, not an impact wrench, a, a, a ratchet, small ratchet, stuff like that, that you would carry something like a small hammer. So they make these little stubby hammers like uh, Stanley makes them and what have you. If I was designing, if, the, if a hammer didn't exist at all, for some reason mankind had not invented the claw hammer, it is very possible if I was designing a multifunctional, do-everything, self-defense weapon, I would come up with a stubby hammer even if the stubby hammer never existed. It is almost a perfect martial arts tool. And what makes it really perfect is it can do a lot of fine motor skills, but in the hands of an average person who simply plays with it and learns how it can be held and used and wielded, it can become a very deadly weapon for anybody's use. And it has one advantage that something like the cane doesn't. And, I'll, and I'm going to give you two videos demonstrating the use of the stubby hammer And it's not a special one. This is a $9 pick it up at Lowe's Home Depot or get it on Amazon Tool by Doug McCardia that is phenomenal, the ability to defend yourself that one of these things gives you in so many ways. But I'm going to tell you, if you learn kind of loose arm striking, uh, things like Sistema teach this to a lesser degree without explaining it, uh, martial arts like Wing Chun and many types of Kung Fu where people will actually mock something like Sistema, the reason the strikes are so powerful is the same thing. It's the weight of the arm. And the short strike with the weight of the arm with an 8-ounce freaking mini hammer in it as an impact weapon will plumb. I mean, a little girl could knock out a grown-ass man if she hits him in the face with it. 
I'm telling you. Like, and it doesn't take that. So what makes a good martial weapon to me is one that I don't have to spend a lot of time training you on. And simply the more times it's in your hand and you mess with it and become comfortable with it, the more, the more functional it becomes. But the big thing, and this is another thing Riccardi is big on, is the self-defense gurus go. He's probably my number one guy I'd recommend you listen to is Doug Riccardi. What he says about a knife is the knife is not meant to be seen. It is meant to be felt. In other words, if you're going to use a knife to defend yourself because you're in a lethal situation, the first time that person should know that that knife exists is when it's cutting them or stabbing them. And that might not sound like a fair fight, but if I'm on my own damn business and you're trying to kill me, the fair fight thing went out the window because I don't want to fight you in the first place. Well, something like a small hammer, especially if it's kept in a, in a bag that's always with you, when you're walking through a parking lot, if you happen to take it out and things like that, it's almost completely concealable. And it doesn't look intimidating anyway until the person really realizes what it is. And about the first time I want them to realize what it is is when it hits them in the temple or breaks their elbow or bashes their hand or hits them in the mouth or that claw goes up their nose holes. And it is one of the most effective things that you can carry as far as a defensive tool that is not considered a weapon that I've ever seen in my life. And it would be very hard, unless you actually use this as a weapon, as an offensive weapon, for anybody legally to make the case that you're carrying a weapon, especially if you're carrying other tools with you, and you have any kind of a story as to why you carry tools. Well, I work on stuff. You know? That's, that's about the whole, the whole answer. Because we're not talking about stuff that looks like good burglary stuff. We're not talking about lockpicks and a crowbar, are we? Right? By the way, a little crowbar, hell of a weapon, too. Next up. Realize that you're walking around with the potential to make a weapon almost immediately 90% of the time, because 90% of the time you're wearing socks. A sock is a unique thing in that it has elasticity to it. So remember I talked about a nunchuck being a flailing weapon? When I was a punk kid and there were some nasty things going on in the town I was growing up in and some nasty things going on with my family and some other families, and I was afraid that somebody might come after me at some point and didn't want to shoot them, I took a piece of wooden dowel, like a half-inch wooden dowel, about a foot long. I put a hook eye in it, put a piece of chain on it about five, six inches long, and took a two-ounce fishing weight, one of those big sandbag-looking ones, and used a, a screw-on chain link as the last link, drilled out that piece of lead a little bit, and basically made a flailing weapon with two ounces of lead on the end of it. It was probably as deadly as a gun. It would have gone through your head. But that looks like a weapon. You can do almost the same thing with any sock. You take a sock, put something heavy in it, and tie a knot in it, and you have a hell of a, a hell of a flailing weapon. And I'm talking, you hit an arm, again, you want to strike bone, hard to hard, right? That's another martial arts technique. Hard to hard, soft to soft, right? So you go hard to hard with a sock. My wife had one of these when she first when she was living on her own after her first divorce or her only divorce. Hopefully, it will only ever be her only divorce. Um, where she just took a piece of like eight inch piece of half inch chain, stuck it in a sock, tied a knot, and kept it under her bed in case somebody came in the house and she's sleeping at night. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have got wouldn't have got hit in the face with that. So a sock can instantly be improvised. Well, you know, carrying extra socks just makes sense. And if you had that toolkit, you know those little those big nuts. Right. Well, if you went down to like Tractor Supply, where they sell nuts and bolts and washers by the pound, and just picked up like a few of each size nut, a few of each size bolts, a few of each size washers, until you had a nice handful 
good six ounces that cost you less than a couple bucks. And he took an old sock and put them inside there and just tied a loose-handed knot in and put that in your toolkit. I mean, if you were ever asked what that is, well, I just carry a bunch of different nuts and bolts and washers, and uh, they were getting all throughout this bag, so I threw them in an old sock because I figured that way I could keep track of them. Tell you, you hit somebody in the face with that, and it's multifunctional. You might actually need one of those things. There's a lot of different ways that you can defend yourself. I like Kubatons. My problem with a Kubaton is while it is a pretty good impact weapon, it's more of a finesse weapon, and it requires more training. But even if, if, if all you had was a Kubaton, which is basically a little small hand baton that you could put on a keychain, like a key fob, if nothing else, it can be held in the hand so that the, the butt end comes out of the, the, the fist. And, you know, even a, a young woman or something walking through a parking lot, if you just have that in your hand when you're walking, you've got the keys coming out the top, you've got flail, you've got a hammer fist on the bottom. And, again, think about where you strike. Eyes, nose. In that flail to the eyes, strike to the nose, and run. And the important thing for people to understand with improvised weapons and stuff, if you're using this, we're not in the gym, we're not training, somebody's really trying to hurt, kill, rape, maim you, Your, your goal is not to play vigilante and hold them down. Your goal is to extricate yourself from the situation because what you have to realize is even if the guy that, that attacked you is stupid because he was bigger than you but he didn't know that you trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu your entire life and he has no real fighting skill and he's just a thug and he picked the wrong person, you don't know that he's the only thug. And while you're arm barring his ass and breaking his arm, you could have your, your head stomped and your brain spilled out. So when you're in those situations, extrication is the goal. The thing with Kubatons is people know what they are and they are weapons. So one of the things I've seen done and I really like is to take something like a wooden dowel, maybe even put it on a lathe and kind of turn it and make it look really ornate. Stain it, seal it, dress it up a little bit. If you're a girl, paint the damn thing pink or purple or both, you know. Uh, or if you do, if you like to fly your purple f uh, pink flag as a guy, I don't care, whatever. But you get what I'm saying, make it look ornate, and, and then it's just a key fob. Where a purpose-built Kubaton is clear and may be screened out by some screeners in some locations. I think it'd be really hard. It's just a piece of wood on the end of your keys. Why do you carry that? Take it back from them, stick it in your front pocket, put the... Put the baton all the way in your pocket, let your keys out. So when I'm going to my car, I can grab my keys and get them out really quick, and it won't fall out of my pocket. And my keys don't dig into me when I'm walking. You see, it has a reason, and therefore it's more likely to be something you can get past the screener. Plus, instead of like some you know expensive, purpose-made Kubaton, if it's just some piece of wood you fabricated, if they take it away from you, you just make another one and you go on about your way learn how to use it. And the big thing is to learn how to use and drill the scenarios that you'd have to use these improvised tools. You know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, a, a tactical pen. Man, if you're down to a pen, you are down to your last of your last. Right? You're not Jason Bourne. You're not going to beat the shit out of somebody with a magazine. Right? It's just... Uh, and last but not least, think about most of us wear belts. A belt is a hell of a weapon. 
and a belt can easily have something dropped onto it for weight really, really quick. It's not so much the best tool in an ambushed situation, but in an intervention situation where maybe you're not the person to be attacked, belt has a lot of things can be done with it, including entire fighting styles of using belt as a control tool. But then we're back to fine motor skills. And one of the things I want to caution everybody about with all martial arts is there's a lot of really gifted martial artists. They teach these fine motor skill situations. And if you're a person that's done nothing but training them for 20 years, sure, most of the time that they'll work for you even in the real world. But most people don't have time to do that. Most people don't live in a dojo. And quick, dirty, efficient is the way you think to stay alive. Situational awareness on top of it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you, if you want to help support this show, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you just go to tspaz.com, oh, damn it, speaking of tspaz, one more tool that works really great is a self-defense tool, a mag light. You can get a really big one, like a 6D cell, but even like a 3D cell mag light. The mag light has a thing about it that makes it more than just a heavy club that you can beat the shit out of somebody with. And as somebody who one time in my life had to use a mag light on somebody that tried to crawl through the window of my vehicle, I'm going to tell you that if you smack somebody in the, in, in the facial bone and across the nose one time with a decel mag light and you know how to swing if, you know, at all, it, it works. Okay? Uh, but the thing about a mag light as an improvised weapon is not only is it an impact tool, it's a blinding tool. And if the mag light is carried the way you think, you know, of a, of a cop looking in a window where you're kind of like hammer fisting it and the, 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 the light portion is against the close side of your hand so it could be used as a club really quickly and that pinky is right there or that pinky or your ring finger is right there on that button, well, when, that, when, when, when you are approached by someone who you think is going to take a swing at you or even does and you decide you have a need to knock the shit out of them, when you bring that light up and hit that button in their eyes, it blinds them, and the next thing they know, crack. You can get D-cell mag lights on T-spaz. Um, but T-spaz item of the day today is not the D-cell mag light. It is one-foot extension power cables and a four-way hydra of little short cables. So one plug goes to four one male goes to four females in a little hydra plug, so like a like a uh, like a harness kind of thing. Or there's a pack of just uh, five one foot cables. Now I know what you're thinking. Why the hell would I want a one foot extension cable, fool? Well, what does the underneath of your desk look like? How many power strips do you have to tie together because every damn thing plugged into them instead of having a nice little plug has one of those great big uh, uh, plugs that you know the, that are designed to get a conversion of DC power or something like that. And so you plug one plug in and there goes three outlets. Well, these little one-foot plugs, you plug those into your power strip and then you save space. Works great behind TVs, under computer desks. I use them with my fish tank setups because some of the lights and stuff use those big plugs. Then the hydras um, are even better because you go to one outlet and then you've got a four-way splitter, but instead of having one of those little you know, splitters like you get at Walmart that are a solid splitter, you have space in between them. So again, those big honking plugs can go on them. These things are just great. They're not going to save you from the zombie apocalypse, but they make your life a little bit better. Uh, you can check them out on the website. Um, I use them for a lot of things, too, little one-foot cords. Why is it that freaking crock pots, vacuum sealers, 
roasting pans, all that shit comes with these little bitty-ass cords. And if you're putting it up on a counter and there's an outlet right there, it's fine. But if you have, like me, I have a big island, and I have two quad boxes uh, wired into the island that are right underneath the countertop. But I have the countertop like a bar, so like you can sit on it in a stool without your legs busting up against the thing. And damned if all of those pieces of equipment, coffee grinders, all that shit, just doesn't quite reach up underneath there. Or if it does, it's like right on the edge, you know it's going to get knocked off. So you go get your six, eight-foot extension cord, plug it in. Now you got a long-ass cord. Dog runs by. Boom, there goes a hot crock pot on the ground. Or you break another coffee grinder that Nicole Sauce already broke one on you. But you put this little one-foot cord on, and four of them are like eight bucks. So they're like less, just a little over a dollar a piece. So you put that on there and just leave it there when you put that piece of equipment away. And now it's long enough that it works in most situations. So, again, just something that makes your life a little better. You can find them at T-SPAS. You can help us all the time. No matter what you buy, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by a guy I've never heard before, heard of before, or heard before until today. His name is Jose Feliciano. And we are doing Blind Singers Week, and he is blind. I don't really know much about him. I'm going to look into more because I really like this song. He's clearly an older gentleman, and it, 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 it makes sense to me that he would have a song like this. This song is, God, please give me 50. P give, please give me 50 more. And he's talking about years of his life, best I can tell. Um, it's interesting, neither I nor John, who puts together the, uh, the musical programming for this show for me, can find the lyrics of the song online. We have to manually enter them if we want to read them. Um, but there is enough in it that I think he's talking about his kids and or his grandkids as four. And he's talking about life is in 50 more years. And it is a beautiful song. And it, it really is something I wanted to talk to you today about especially if you're not at the point yet where you're having this moment, if you're still in your 20s and 30s. I don't want to get Messiah Syndrome when it comes to keto living or even just losing weight, but I'm telling you the number one thing killing people in America today is obesity. It is not a stretch by a long shot. When you look at the leading causes of death and the role that obesity plays in all of them, it is the number one killer in America today when you look at things that are killing people before they have to go. It is the number one reason people are losing their hands and feet. It's the number one reason people are blowing up their kidneys. It's the number one reason people are having eyesight damage or going blind from type 2 diabetes. It's the number one reason people are getting diabetes other than people born or that go into a type 1 you know, type of onset of diabetes. Diabetes is projected in 10 years to consume the entire budget of the healthcare industry. And it all goes back to obesity. And as I've put out material on improving your health and your nutrition, I have occasionally come across people that I can tell are like in their 20s and 30s that joke about how badly they treat their body. I'm almost 50 now. And I can tell you that when you start to have certain things go wrong and you start to think about how you treated your body for 50 years, you realize you're lucky you're still here. And you remember making those jokes when you were 25, 35 And you realize those jokes aren't funny anymore. And you realize they never were. They were just your excuse for abusing yourself. And I'm going to tell you when, you, when you cross about 45, you know that most people don't make 90. A lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. Most people don't make 90. 
we think of as 50 as middle age, but I think 45 is closer to it. So every day after you turn 45 is your measure in your dash. You know your dash is getting shorter. You know that you probably have less years in front of you than you do behind you. And this shows all about building a life worth living that's resilient and amazing and based on abundance. And then to get a little damn self-respect and appreciation for yourself, don't even just think about yourself. Don't even just think about the people you love. Look around and you'll realize there has been people who have been afflicted with problems that aren't because they didn't take care of their health. Maybe they were injured, or maybe they were born with a genetic defect. And they're not getting 50 more, under any circumstances, at all. And yeah, lightning could strike you from the sky in the form of actual lightning or something like some kind of cancer that can't be treated. And even maybe if you live the best life possible, you'll become one of them. But if you're not right now, and you know how much they would love the opportunity you have... Don't you have some level of responsibility of a human being to make the most of the life you have in honor of the people that won't? And then do think about the people that care about you. Do you want them caring for you with Alzheimer's, which we now have good reason to believe is literally type 3 diabetes of the brain when it doesn't have to happen? Do you want your wife or your husband to have to take you four times a week to dialysis because your kidneys are gone? Do you want to have somebody have to read to you because you've gone blind? Don't think it can happen to you. And you people that think it's funny about how bad you abuse yourself, I won't come down on you because I did it. But I want you to think about something. At some point, you're going to be my age or older, and you're going to realize that all that shit you did, even if you're relatively healthy, may have taken years off your life, and no matter what you do, you'll never get back. But whatever point you're at, It's kind of like planting a tree. Best day to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The next best day is today. Next best day is tomorrow. You're supposed to take care of yourself your whole life. But if you haven't, the best day to start is today. And then maybe when you're thinking, God, give me 50 more. Maybe you'll get some of them. Maybe you'll get all of them. Maybe you'll get most of them. But maybe more importantly, however many you get, Maybe you'll get the best quality you possibly can have in all of them. I don't care if it's ketogenic or low carb. I don't care what it is. But be mindful of your health while you have it. And if something awful does come into your life, the healthier you are when it happens, the better you'll be able to deal with it and the more you'll have to look forward to. Think about that this weekend. If you haven't accepted my challenge yet... To lose weight through ketogenics? You know, if you want to do it some other way, fine. But if you want to do it through ketogenics, get in touch with me. I'll help you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.